to the Mercy House University podcast, and this is a new series that we're embarking on. It's going to be called How God Explains Everything, and we mean absolutely everything. Uh, Really what we're going to be focusing on here are arguments for the existence of God and the ways that when we look at different features of the world uh, or of um, the, the whole universe of different things around us, we can look to God as the explanation for why those different features obtain. Uh, so today we're just going to be kind of talking about arguments for the existence of God in general, what the whole strategy of the series is going to be, and how we move from the specific arguments to uh, a whole cumulative case. And Justin is going to be taking the lead to kind of walk us through that today. So Justin, why don't you tell us, why is it worth thinking about arguments for the existence of God? Uh, Yeah, so I think that there are a few reasons. Um, So one reason is because arguments for the existence of God amount to a kind of public evidence. Uh, And that's important because um, if we're going to have a relationship with God it seems like it would help for us to be able to know that God exists. And while some people um, report having really uh, powerful and consistent experiences that are at least apparently experiences of God, and which seem to enable them to know that God exists and to know certain things about God, um, not everyone has those kinds of experiences. And so it's valuable that there's public evidence that can be useful for coming to know that God exists, where public evidence is evidence that you can kind of share, right? Like, so if I have experiences of God, I can't just make you have those same experiences. But if I know about an argument for the existence of God, I can tell you that argument, and then you can think about it for yourself and try to decide whether you think the argument is a good one or not. So that's one thing that I think is valuable about thinking about arguments for the existence of God. Um, Another thing that's valuable about thinking about these arguments, um, this is a point that has been made by William Lane Craig in a somewhat different but related context. Um, When you think about arguments for the existence of God, ultimately that leads you to think about God, about what God is like and how God is related to the world. Um, And this, it turns out, I think, is extremely valuable. Um, Well, I mean, obviously it's valuable in some (laughs) ways, but one of the things that Craig points out is that there are times when thinking philosophically about God has led him to worship Mm. because he's like come to some realization about what God is like or how God is related to the world that has inspired a response of praise or worship. And so... Uh, thinking about arguments for the existence of God is just one further tool for arriving at that kind of destination. Um, And I guess we could add this further point, another one that Craig has made. Uh, In our culture, there's kind of an attitude that a lot of people have that uh, religious belief is irrational, that religion is kind of an anti-intellectual phenomenon, And I think that um, thinking about and being familiar with arguments for the existence of God can be useful for combating that attitude and removing that barrier, as Craig puts it, to religious belief. So, Justin, what do you think is the role of arguments for God 
uh, in people coming to belief, in strengthening belief? Um, what, what role does that play? And uh, where does it succeed or fail? Yeah. So um, I guess I'm inclined to think something like this, and there are some people who have defended views along these lines. Uh, maybe the main value of arguments for the existence of God is that they bring out explicitly what our evidence is for the existence of God. Now, I think our evidence comes in lots and lots of different forms, and we just sort of automatically respond to it in certain ways, and we it's sometimes it's unconscious and so forth, right? So, and that evidence could, I mean, it could be lots of things. It could be features of the world that we observe. It could be features of scripture that we observe just when reading scripture. It could be our experiences and so forth. But what arguments do is they help to bring out the public aspects of that evidence and, and to make it explicit, like, okay, here is the evidence that has, you know, led you to form this belief or might be influencing this belief and the way in which that evidence actually supports that belief. So I think that, um, in general, people can have um, good reasons to think that God exists without ever having stopped to reflect on what the ex- like specific arguments are. Uh, but, nevertheless, I think that more often than not, maybe always, the reasons that people have for thinking that God exists are the kinds of things that can be formulated into arguments if you were to set your mind to it and and try to do that. Um, And so really what we're doing here is is just taking a, a sort of an analytical look at the sort of automatic kind of reasoning or or belief forming that we do without really thinking about it in Mm. ordinary life. Uh, I do think it's important that you noted that uh, the arguments that are like the common arguments for God's existence, the ones that we're focusing on are centered around the public evidence uh, in favor of God's existence, because a lot of, uh, a lot of the time it might be the case that people have a belief in God's existence that is based on evidence that's available only to them. Like uh, maybe somebody believes that God exists and their belief is based on uh, the fact that their parents believe that God exists and told them that God exists. And so it's like based on this uh, relationship with their parents and their their personal experience of their parents. And that's not evident for me, their their relationship with their parents is not evidence for me about whether or not God exists. And maybe it's based partially on their experience, uh, their religious experience in their, uh, their church community or something like that, which also is not evidence for me because I didn't have that experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we could, they, they might have, uh, they might be able to sort of, reason with themselves about God's existence based on that evidence, have kind of a little dialogue with themselves and give themselves other arguments for God's existence based on that evidence. But the arguments we're focused on are the arguments that uh, proceed from evidence that's available to everybody, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, and Yeah, I think, I think that what you acknowledged, uh, that there are these different reasons, right, for which people believe. Um, and I think that's helpful when we think about doing uh, maybe a more apologetic 
project, right? We're coming, looking at arguments for or arguments against the existence of God. Um, that those arguments themselves aren't, yeah, aren't often the reasons why people believe um, or disbelieve. And I found that in even doing some of the research for talks, as you read some of the arguments, and think, wow, these are really compelling. And then you see people trying to refute them and not even giving good reasons, but they're just like, their, their response is, this, this can't be right, this can't be true. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think people just as often disbelieve because they don't want to believe as because they have good reason to disbelieve um, and vice versa. So uh, I guess just situating the role of these kinds of arguments in people coming to belief. Um, and I think there are lots of different reasons why people come to believe in the first place. Um, and these arguments can be, like I said, take down barriers that would keep people from belief. Uh, and then once people have belief, they can also strengthen that belief. Um, but you're not, I don't know how often, you know, one of these arguments is going to get someone from, oh, I totally disbelieve to, oh, I completely believe now. But there are other parts of, of that process. So oh, yeah. Other sure. factors at play. Um, but that these are an important part of that. Yeah, I think, uh, so one thing uh, the philosopher Joshua Rasmussen likes to talk about arguments as pathways, and um, I think that's a helpful kind of way to think about them. It's like a, a pathway is something you can go down if you want to, or you can choose not to go down if you don't want to, and uh, when you're thinking about using arguments like this, you have to remember that people are not just, uh, I, all, that nobody's an ideally rational agent and not everybody wants to go down the pathway all the time for various kinds of reasons, uh, explanatory reasons, you know, and various uh, emotional reasons or, uh, experiential reasons that, that could be preventing them from wanting to go down that path. Uh, so yeah, so all, all that to say that, uh, all these arguments are kind of like tools, but you can't, you can give somebody a tool, but you can't necessarily force them to use it all the time. Mm. Um, I think it's worth talking about how, or about the fact that there are arguments exempt against the existence of God as well. So it's, you know, we're, we've been talking maybe so far as if all there are, are these arguments for the existence of God, but there are arguments the other direction as well. So are we going to talk about those? Yeah, that's a good point. So um, in this series, we will not be looking at arguments against the existence of God. We have thought about maybe doing some of that in the future. Um, But it is important to acknowledge that there are such arguments. And I think that it's important to think about those arguments for basically the same reasons that it's important to think about arguments for the existence of God. So one reason is that arguments against the existence of God are a kind of public evidence that's relevant to whether or not people can know or do know that God exists. Um, And so we got to take that evidence into account as well as the other public evidence that maybe favors God's existence. Um, And another thing is, again, there's that idea of, you know, this sort of anti-intellectual view of religion. Well, thinking about arguments against the existence of God and, and maybe uh, trying to show that those arguments are not successful can help to combat that view that religion is just kind of an anti-intellectual 
um, phenomenon that sort of ignores, you know, arguments against it and so forth. And then similarly, just like arguments for the existence of God are a really, really useful tool for thinking about God, so are arguments against the existence of God. I think some of the most interesting things that you can learn about God, you can learn about thinking about uh, prima facie problems for about, you know, what God is like and how God is related to the world, which are the sorts of things that these arguments tend to highlight. Okay, so we're making... Uh, a number of different arguments over the course of the series. How do these arguments come together in some way? Do they contribute to one another? Um, what is that like? Yeah, like? good. Yeah, so we have, um, I mean, there are tons of arguments for the existence of God. There was a book published, I guess, two years now called Two Dozen or So Arguments for God, which was based on um, lecture notes by uh, the philosopher of religion Alvin Plantinga. Uh, what we're going to be doing in this series is we've selected seven arguments for the existence of God to focus on. And so um, the next seven episodes after this one, each one will be looking at one particular argument for the existence of God. But one thing that you might notice as we go through these arguments um, is this. Each one of those arguments is going to uh, be an argument for the existence of a being with at least some, but not necessarily all, of uh, God's attributes. So, for example, we'll look at um, arguments which try to show that there is uh, a being that designed the natural world. But even if we get that far, that still leaves open this question of, well, is that being also like a morally good being? Is it also an eternal being? And so forth. And then similarly, uh, you might notice that each of these arguments actually has a slightly different conclusion because um, while each of them tries to show that there's a being with at least some of the divine attributes, often the particular attributes that they arrive at are different. So we'll look at arguments for the existence of a designer of the natural world, but we'll also see an argument for like an all-powerful being and an argument for a, a being with an infinite intellect and so forth. And so it looks, it's going to look like all these arguments actually have different conclusions and that they're not really pointing in the same direction. So what is the deal here? Uh, it seems like we've got two kind of, you know, problems or at least questions right off the bat about how exactly these arguments are supposed to help us um, uh, in terms of showing that God exists. Well, what we're going to be doing is uh, there's a certain strategy that has some philosophers have recently defended in the literature for dealing with these problems. And we're going to use that strategy to structure our sort of treatment of these different arguments. So uh, what I want to do now is briefly explain what that strategy is, and then we'll employ it as we go along. So the strategy makes use of the following thought. It seems like, both in ordinary life, in science, and elsewhere, when we try to explain things, one kind of explanation that we often seem to think is a very good sort of explanation, and frequently the best explanation available, is one that appeals to what's called a universal generalization, a claim about the way all things of a certain sort are. So, for example... Every raven that I have ever seen is black. Why is that? 
Well, here's here's what seems like a, uh, other things being equal a very good explanation of that. Uh, all ravens are black. Why is it that every raven I've seen is black? Because all ravens are black. Or uh, here are a couple of other examples, and I'm stealing all of these examples from other people. But um, so why is it that gravity works everywhere we look? Well, it seems like other things being equal, the best explanation is because gravity works everywhere. Why is it that every electron we've ever tested is negatively charged? Well, other things being equal, it seems like the best explanation is because all electrons are negatively charged. All right, so there's this, this phenomenon just in the way that we ordinarily reason about things, uh, which is that we seem to think universal generalizations tend to be very good and often the best explanations of certain things. And what we're going to do is apply that in the context of arguing for the existence of God. And to see how, we need to think about the way in which Christians have usually thought about what sort of being God is. So traditionally, Christians have thought that God is an absolutely perfect being. And they have also thought that that means certain things. Um, so uh, following Tom Morris, you might think that, well, a perfection is just any property or attribute that it's intrinsically better to have than to lack. Roughly, any property or attribute that would make a being a better sort of being if it had that property. And in the sort of Christian tradition, um, usually people have thought that these kinds of properties are perfections. Um, like abilities or powers to do things. A being is more perfect to the extent that it has more powers. Knowledge. A being is more perfect to the extent that it has more knowledge. Um, moral character or virtue. The more morally virtuous a being is, the better it is. And then similarly, like stability of existence. The more a being is invulnerable to destruction, not dependent on other things for its existence, the, the greater or more perfect a being it is. And so an absolutely perfect being would be a being that has, uh, is all-powerful and all-knowing and morally perfect uh, and has the most stable mode of existence that anything could possibly have, which traditionally has been thought to be necessary existence, which is just, you know, existing in every possible situation no matter what, is the way it's sometimes put. Okay, so suppose, it, suppose that's right. Suppose we think of God as uh, an absolutely perfect being, and we think of perfections as being those sorts of properties. Well, then every single argument we look at can be thought of as an argument for the existence of a being with a whole lot of perfections. So, for example, if we, if we consider an argument for the existence of a being that designed the natural world, well, that's going to be a being with a whole lot of powers and a whole lot of bits of knowledge, whatever power and knowledge is necessary to design a universe like this one. And so that's going to be a being with a fairly high level of perfection, a lot higher level of perfection than I have, for example. I certainly couldn't design a universe like this one. Um, and what we're going to suggest when we arrive at this sort of preliminary conclusion for each of these arguments is that the best explanation of why the being that we've arrived at has all of those perfections is the, a corresponding universal generalization 
namely that it has all the perfections that there are, right? It has all these perfections that this argument has shown that it has because it has all perfections. And so um, that's going to solve both of the sort of problems that we, uh, that I outlined a minute ago, right? So one problem is when we get to the preliminary conclusion of each argument and we've shown, well, there's a being that has at least some of the divine attributes, how do we get to the rest of the divine attributes? Well, we can do it by this inference. We can say, well, look, the best explanation of why it has those attributes is that it has the rest of them too. But then also we solve the problem about how each of those arguments is going to look like it has a slightly different conclusion. Because if each conclusion is, involves the being having like some of these perfections, and if in each case the best explanation of why it has those perfections is because it has all the rest of them as well, then it turns out that each of these arguments is actually giving at least some evidence for the existence of an absolutely perfect being. And so they're actually all pointing in the same direction. And that's how we're going to stitch all those arguments together into a cumulative case for the existence of God. Well, that's a pretty grand theory. Uh, <laughs> here's one suggestion for how somebody might push back against that approach. Um, it seems like maybe a lot of ordinary things have at least some perfections. Mm -hmm. um, maybe you think uh, existence is a kind of perfection, like to exist is better than not to exist. So you have like, you have a perfection right there. Uh, yes. Well, does that mean the best explanation of that is that you're a perfect being? <laughs> right. Good. Doesn't yeah. seem like it. <laughs> I mean, I've I've known you long enough to know that's not true. So. Right. So uh, and and similarly, like I mean, I have at least some powers and at least mm -hmm. some knowledge, but uh, it would be pretty crazy to say that I'm a perfect being, right? Yeah. It seems like. You know, it's not the case that the best, best explanation of why I have those perfections is that I have all perfections. Yeah, so right. why should we think in the case of these, these uh -huh. other arguments that just because a being, that there is a necessary being that we, should, that we should explain that fact by thinking that it must be a perfect being or that if there is a being with all power that it must be a perfect being. Yeah, why should yeah. we make that move in that case and not right. in the Justin case? So I think there's kind of two reasons why, and they kind of work together, actually. So first, um, there's this thought. Um, I may have some perfection, but not a whole lot. Like, compared to, say... <laughs> <laughs> it's good to be modest. <laughs> well, compared to a being that has enough knowledge and power to create the whole world, for example, right? Like, I have just tiny amounts of knowledge and power. Compared to a being that exists in literally every possible situation, the mere fact that I exist in some possible situations, right? Like, that's, that's a much lower degree of perfection, right? And so you can think about it this way. Like, if, if I see one black raven, that's not a lot of evidence that all ravens are black. That's like maybe a tiny amount of evidence that all ravens are black. Whereas if I see a million black ravens, that's a lot of evidence that all ravens are black. And so you might think um, one important difference here is just that at the conclusion or the preliminary conclusion of each of these arguments, 
um, is not going to be just that there's a being with at least some perfections. It's going to be that there's a being with a whole lot of perfection, more perfection than any of like the ordinary objects in our everyday experience. And then relatedly, um, another point here, I think, is that uh, it makes a difference whether we know that on other grounds that a being, even if it has some perfections, is nevertheless imperfect. Because in the case of, like, suppose we arrive at the conclusion that, oh, there's some kind of designer of the universe. Well, what kind of properties would that sort of thing have to have? Uh, you might think, well, it's going to have to have some perfections. It's less obvious, though this gets into a whole other subject, that it would also have to have any imperfections. But in the case of me, it's pretty obvious that even though I have some perfections, or at least the things we're calling perfections, I also clearly have some imperfections. There, I, I, you know, have some severe limitations with respect to knowledge and power and moral character and existence and so on. Um, and so uh, it's sort of like, you know, finding some black ravens and also some blue ravens. Like, it's not a very good explanation of that to say, well, all ravens are black. Mm -hmm. <laughs> or maybe we could think the best explanation for you having some imperfections is that you have all imperfections. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so anyway, I think that those two thoughts um, kind of working together, I guess, are, are the way I would like to, uh, I prefer to respond to that objection. Great. All right, so I guess... Uh, so we've got seven episodes after this. After this one, yeah. Uh, where we'll be examining so seven different arguments uh, for the existence of God. And uh, hopefully those will uh, come together and give you a stronger reason for believing in God. And the plan is to make them into a cumulative case using this approach of explaining the conclusion of each argument by reference to a perfect being. So we'll see if we can make a big cumulative case for the existence of a perfect being over the course of this series, looking at how God explains everything. Yeah.